It's easy to forget and to trivialize the significance of Jesus not beginning his public ministry till he was 30 and Jesus being a tradesman. And his parables are not the parables of an academic. They're not the parables of an intellectual. They're a parable of, of somebody who lived among common people. He didn't invest his future in the elite professional class. I'm thankful that Bob Yarbrough is my friend because he is a man of multiple talents. He's a logger. He is a runner. He's possibly the hardest working person I know. He can sit in a chair and write 3,000 words. That's almost an entire chapter of a book in one day when he's focused and ready to go. He's a theologian and he really understands what it means to work in a variety of settings. From the Center for Faith and Work here in St. Louis, this is Working With Me, your host, Dan Doriani. Here we strive to fire the imagination of Christians who long to practice their faith in the workplace. Through conversations with doctors, athletes, teachers, executives, and more, we seek to engage those who desire to do significant work, to practice love and justice in their work, and who dare to change their corner of the world through that work. My guest today is Bob Yarbrough, who's been a friend of mine for a number of years. And I wanted to have you on our program today, Bob, because you are one of those people who has worked in the field of manual labor, skilled manual labor, and academic work. So you've done research on things like the work ethic of the Apostle Paul, but you've also worked. So just a little bit of background. Bob is a New Testament scholar, teaches at Covenant Seminary, also was at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School and Wheaton, uh, now University. Uh, he was also a pastor for a number of years, and he was also, uh, you know, gets called different things in different places, but we could say in Montana you were a logger for a number of years. Or timber feller. Or timber feller, and also have done a lot of tree work, and that's very intense manual labor. You have to be strong, you have to climb trees, carry around heavy saws but it's also very mental labor. It takes a lot of mental skill. So I wanted you to, to address that. Before we get to it, I, I want to make sure our guests know that Bob has also written a number of books, well-regarded, well-reviewed. He's spoken in uh, every inhabited continent except South America. We'll try to get him there sometime, and maybe a dozen countries, maybe more. So he is an estimable person, author, educator, manual laborer, mental manual laborer. Can you tell us a little bit about your work as a tree feller or logger and why manual labor is, is dignified and challenging both mentally and physically? Tell us a few things okay. about what you did. Well, um, you're using the term uh, uh, logger and, and that works. That's kind of a generic term for, for everything that goes into to moving a tree from a, uh, a mountain forest, typically in, in Montana or Idaho, where I worked, uh, to a sawmill. I got into this through climbing trees. My, my father and grandfather worked for Davy Tree Expert Company based in Kent, Ohio. So it was that skill set of, of using a chainsaw and doing things with trees that uh, eventually when I landed in Montana, uh, and was desperate for money, I scraped together the last of our money, my wife and I, and bought a saw and went to work in the woods. So uh, it is demanding physically. Uh, it's also demanding mentally because uh, uh, you have to stay alive. And uh, there's an art to getting big trees down without, without hurting yourself and getting them down without 
uh, hanging the trees up in other trees and getting them down without destroying the, the timber you're supposed to be preserving. And there are lots of ways to uh, mess up a strip that you're sawing. If you're talking about climbing trees, obviously you've got the height uh, factor and it's easy to fall out. It's easy to do property damage. Often you're taking down a tree because it's over somebody's swimming pool or over their house or it's next to power lines. All kinds of ways to go wrong. Um, but that's, you know, that's the challenge. Uh, give, it, give us a sense of the size. So trees, you can climb trees that are 30, 60, 80, 100 feet and they can weigh many tons. Well, certainly many tons. The the biggest tree I cut was a ponderosa pine that made 7,000 board feet. The bottom log was 60 inches across, and at the small end, it was still 45 inches across. <laughs> so when they sent that log to the mill, they put two smaller logs on a long log truck, which holds you know, 40-foot logs, and then they put that log on top of it. It was a three-log load and that weighed over 40,000 pounds, those three logs. So yeah, a big log can weigh uh, four tons, five tons, six tons. Yeah. And a tree, obviously, much more. Right. Can you tell us about a time when, uh, you know, you needed to get it right or else? Maybe, maybe a house was on the line or maybe your own life was possibly imperiled? Well, uh, Dan, you, you may remember a big tree I took down for your, uh, your daughter and son-in-law. I do remember it. And uh, that was right in between some houses. And happily, there was a yard that things would kind of drop down into. But you had to be able to drop everything down into that yard. And that, that was a sweet gum tree that was right at 100 feet tall. And where I tied in was about 85 feet off the ground. So everything had to be either... Uh, jump we call it a jump cut when you kind of jump a big limb you either had to get it to go right down in that spot or you had to tie ropes on it and uh, and swing it around and even i mean even the side the side branches were massive i mean they were they look small when you're you're standing on the ground you say, well that's not that big of a limb and then you it gets to the ground and you realize oh that's that's 20 inches through right i first went up that tree with a with a saw with a 16 inch bar and of course, I don't do this every day anymore. <laughs> uh, this is what, five or six years ago? It was five years ago. Yeah, five years ago. But I got up there and I realized there are no cuts up here that this saw will make. All these limbs are bigger than 16 inches. So I, I, I went down and I got my, uh, my saw with a 24-inch bar. And that's the one that I used to take down the rest of the... Well, when we got to the trunk of the tree, I had to pull up my big saw, which has a 28-inch bar. I like that. Not, I, I wasn't using my 24-inch blade, if I can use it in layman's terms. I had to get my big one. Right. Well, there it's a, it's a matter of engine displacement. The one, the one with the 24-inch, uh, that's uh, just over three cubic inch saw. Uh, but the big one uh, is a Husqvarna uh, 394 XP. So it's close to 100 cc's. Oh, yeah. That's so different. it's very, very powerful. Yeah. So a lot of people have the idea that physical labor, tree work, for example, or carpentry, is uh, antithetical to mental labor. So there's professionals and there's laborers. And, uh, you know, there's a book written not all that long ago called uh, Shop Class as Soul Craft that was, you know, at the top of a New York Times bestseller list. And his thesis was, no, actually manual labor, skilled manual labor, is intensely creative thoughtful, mentally skilled, not man, not, it's not 
just manual labor. My sense is you would agree with that thesis and maybe have a few things to say about it. Well, you know, probably on any job there there are the menial aspects. So, like if you're if you're building fence, just just digging the hole itself, there might be aspects of that that's just hard work. But um, to, to keep our vision on trees here, um, yeah, dragging brush to the brush chipper in itself is just you know backbreaking, arduous work. But when you look at the big picture, um, how a job gets done, if you have say seven people on the job, how do you use all those people well and uh, nobody's standing around not, not doing anything? How do you do it safely? How do you manage the risks that are involved in, in, in this particular job, especially when a lot of these jobs, uh, if we talk about the, the, say, tree removal in a residential area, you're, you're, you're pushing the limits of what the physics will allow because the trees may be so big and they may be leaning over a house. Ropes will only hold so much. Uh, every situation has its limitations as, as to what you can do. So and some, I'm guessing they're never identical or almost never Of course, identical. they're never identical. And um, somebody has to be in charge of all that. And, and sometimes there are two or three people that really, really need to be sharp at what they do. I was always a climber. Uh, and when I climbed, I was I was young and I was inexperienced. And I learned very quickly there were guys on the ground that, you know, they looked pretty inept and they were not climbers. But a good ground man uh, was absolutely essential on, on huge, you know, we call them takedowns, because he had the experience. And he knew exactly, you know, when to hold a rope, when to let a rope go, uh, how many rafts to take around a tree to snub the rope when big pieces would start to come down, how many people needed to be on a rope. And uh, climbers, you know, they, they, they know a lot and, and um, they basically are responsible. They're kind of like the pilot. They're responsible for things. But every climber knows that the ground man has veto power over what you rig up. And uh, often he'll, he'll tell you as, as you're going, that, that's not going to work, or why don't you try this or that. Nobody wants to destroy a house. Nobody wants to die. Nobody wants to uh, hurt somebody else. Nobody wants to make a, a lost time type mistake or property damage mistake. But that will happen unless you do everything pretty much exactly right uh, when you get to, to a certain level of risk. So that's, that's, uh, that's very challenging mental, plus often, there, there is some of uh, there's, there's a physical intermixing. You've got your timing, how fast you cut something off, how much you let it swing before you finally cut it off. Uh, even physically holding yourself in position. Sometimes you've got a saw up above your head and you're cutting between uh, where your safety rope is and where the rope is tied around that piece. So you've got maybe a 12 or 16 inch zone and you've got to make a flush cut or else you'll cut through one of those ropes. And then and you, you're in trouble. And you're, you know, you're tied to all this mm -hmm. and uh, you're 60 feet off the ground and you've been doing this for three or four hours and you're dehydrated, you're exhausted. It's 95 degrees in St. Louis and you've quit sweating. <laughs> and this is the third or fourth cut like this you've made in a row. And as you go down the tree, the cuts get bigger. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, physically, emotionally, uh, intellectually, there's, there's a lot that goes into these seemingly, you know, sort of uh, menial uh, physical labor jobs. And now, you and I, we're both professors. I think you and I would both agree that being a professor can be pretty menial. Also, writing an exam and, proof, you know, proofing it. Uh, making sure the points add up, 
making sure that the program that we use to grade some, maybe some aspect of the exam works. It's, uh, you know, we, we can listen to music on the headphones while doing this. This is, this is not grindingly demanding work. Every job has its menial aspects. For sure. Yeah. yeah, and you didn't mention I think grading, but uh, that that's that's often very menial. So <laughs> we, we have teaching assistants. It, uh, it can be pretty routine. There's no question about that. Yeah, so everybody has everybody has their menial work. It's also true that in every job, people are interested in quitting sometimes. So I'm just going to do a little background. You're an author. I'm an author. People sometimes ask the question, "How do you write a book?" Well, the answer is one sentence, one paragraph at a time, you write enough paragraphs, eventually you have a book. And of course, the content has to be good. Uh, logging is, you know, sort of one branch at a time until it's all done. There are a lot of things like that. And you're also a long distance runner. You've done sprinting and long distance both. And in, in sports, there's often this same interest in uh, starting but not finishing, I'll say. So people have, have walked off the job in just about every field, including logging. Why, why do people quit? And, and how important is endurance in our work? Well, if you, if you quit, you know, then uh, you're, you're out of work. So I, certainly endurance is important in all of our work. But um, I think people, people quit sometimes because of a lack of a sense of purpose. They, they don't know why they're there for sure. And, and maybe they thought... You know, they, they typically people hire on for a job because they need money and they may think, you know, what I'm getting for this is not worth the money. And it's too people, dangerous, maybe too or dangerous, too, cold or too, or hot. Too, too hard, too uncomfortable. Uh, sometimes it's they, they don't get along with the people that that they're hired on with. If you switch over to athletics, sometimes people uh, realize they're in over their head. They're, they're in a competition where. They're going to get beat, and the longer they stay in that race, the worse the beating is going to be. I remember, and I don't remember if it was 64 or 68, but I remember Jim Ryan dropping out of an Olympic time trial. And, of course, he had run, I think, a 351 mile in high school. And when I was in high school, everybody's hero was Jim Ryan. But uh, I think he got maybe kind of clipped and, and, you know, like half spiked or something. And for some reason, he, he dropped out of the race. And that was just inconceivable to me that, that somebody would do that. But I think it shows that no matter what level you're at, uh, there's a temptation to, to throw in the towel because uh, things seem like what, what you're being asked to do, it's, it's not worth what you're getting to do it or... I would put it, you just don't have it in you anymore, you know, to, to face the demands. Or uh, running, a lot of times it's pain. Yes. You know, just, just the pain of, uh, of pushing yourself uh, beyond what, what you want to do. And, you know, I'm trying to think of why people quit in, in logging or tree work. And it's just, it's just, it varies with the individuals. Right. So I, I've um, been thinking about quitting off and on lately since, um, for one thing, I was reading a little bit about a, a, a musical group who uh, just gave up on an album. They worked on it for three years and they said, it's never going to be what we want. We just, we, just, we just throw it aside. And, you know, maybe 10 years later, we'll come back to it and some shell of what we intended will be, will be uh, available to the public. 
Uh, before we started, I was somehow also thinking about Olympics and a man named Jason Lezak, who's known only a little, mostly known as Michael Phelps' teammate. You might remember if about 12 years ago, Phelps won eight gold medals and first time ever to win eight gold medals in an Olympic game. And Lezak was the key player in that eighth and final event that the American relay team was not supposed to win. Phelps was swimming in his weakest, uh, weakest distance, the freestyle 100 meter, and Lezak was the, was the anchor. And the French were supposed to win. They had the best times. They had the fastest swimmer in the world. Everybody expected the French to win. And, and Lezak entered the pool with um, a, half, a half body length deficit, which is pretty much insuperable at that level especially when you're up against the best swimmer in the world, and Lezak was maybe the fifth best in the world or third best at the time. And uh, we all know the image of, of Phelps, you know, kind of screaming, come on, finish, and the crowd's going berserk, and, and you know, they touch apparently simultaneously, and not to give it away, but Lezak won by a hundredth of a second, beating the fastest swimmer in the world. But what intrigued me was interviews afterward in which Lezak said at the 50 meter mark, halfway through his leg, he was thinking about quitting because it was pointless. He, he said, there's no way I'm gonna catch, there's no way I'm gonna catch this man. So why bother, just cruise into a silver. And then he says he was thinking this as he's swimming, uh, but hey, you're at the Olympics, why not give it your best shot? And he relaxed a little bit and started to gain on Elaine Bernard that was his foe. And Bernard saw him gaining on him and tightened up a little bit and then started watching him and started drifting over to, to Lezak's lane, which then allowed Lezak to kind of uh, breeze off him. If, it would, if you were cycling, be breezing in the water. You know, kind of get pulled along a little bit. And then he gained more, and, and Lezak uh, kept swimming in a relaxed way, and Bernard uh, tightens up more, and he, and he won by a hundredth of a second. And I just found it amazing Oh, and they won. Not only did they win the gold medal, but they broke the world's record by four seconds, and Lezak swam the fastest 100 meters of all time. And in the middle of it, he was thinking about quitting. And he thought, you know, ah, why not keep going? Why not keep fighting? And there is, uh, there's something about people that, that makes them want to quit. There's also something that makes them say, no, I'm not going to quit. And it seems to me that you, as, a, as an author and a long-distance runner and a manual, skilled manual labor guy, um, know maybe more about that than anybody I know. Well, certainly diligence is more important than brilliance. Mm. And um, there, there are a lot of academicians. A lot of us are, are, are not that smart in this or that even domain of what we do. Some people go pretty far, say, in New Testament studies, but they may not be great at languages, ironically. Mm -hmm. And I saw it in, in my doctoral work for the first time, really, how important it was just to show up and put in the hours. And sometimes brilliant people, uh, they, they don't finish. You mentioned writing several times. Writing is one of the hardest things I think that there is to do because the goal out there is so far away. And uh, if you're writing, say, a commentary, uh, I remember writing on Romans. There are 432 verses. And in that format, I had 200 words per verse. It's not much. It's not it's much. You've got to be condensed. But it, let's just challenge. say you're going to try to do five to seven verses a day. Still, 
You know, you get done with one, and now there's another one staring at you. Okay, you use your creative energies and your understanding to get that one, and then there's another one, and maybe it's more gnarly than the last one. And after you've done this like 100 or 200 times, even though it's it's uh, scintillating material, uh, you know we're we're human, and it, it just feels like it's never going to get finished. And that's a that's a best case scenario. Not everything is interesting to write about as Romans, right? And sometimes you're not writing 200 words; you're writing more like a thousand words on my. Um, Pastor Epistles commentary, it was more of a thousand words per verse. Well, you know, you've got to cast about and, you know, you've got to do a lot of thinking, a lot of reading and a lot of formulating. And again, I think there's only, uh, say, um, 240 verses or so in the Pastoral Epistles. First uh, Timothy has 113. I do remember that because I, I taught it last week. But that's still a lot of time, you know, a thousand word essay on 242 different verses or whatever it is, that's, that takes a lot of persistence. So not quitting is, is the key, definitely. So I, I've written on Matthew <clears throat> a couple times, actually, and uh, that's about 1,000 verses. And I would divide it up, you know, like I'm at the 10% mark. I'm at the, I'm at the 1 8th mark. That's only 12.5. I'd constantly create little goals for myself to keep it going. And, and, you know, the day I hit 51%, it was, you know, just ecstasy. We're on the downhill. But, you know, these projects can take years. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Um, so we agree that endurance is really important. Um, you've done some work on the Apostle Paul and his work ethic, uh, and you've done extensive work. Could you say a few words about what you learned from the Apostle Paul? Paul was physically tough. I don't think uh, people give him credit uh, for having traveled right at 15,000 miles by foot and by, uh, by little boat. And then if you read 2 Corinthians 11, you're reminded of all the beatings that he took, all the various dangers and deprivations that he was exposed to. Uh, you know, fairly early on uh, in Acts uh, 14, he's stoned right. and left for dead. You know, they right. dragged him out of town, they stoned him, and, and he either died or they thought he was dead, and, and he came back and went right back to what he was doing. So uh, I learned that there's a real resilience uh, to Paul as, as a minister. Uh, I also realized that he set the bar very high for uh, his expectations for his output. So words like toil are very common. And where I really uh, zeroed in on this was doing First and Second Timothy and Titus and uh, seeing how much, how, how heavily he leaned on these men um, not because they were something special or superhuman, because that's, that's intrinsic to being a disciple. And of course, we have disciples in all kinds of capacities. But um, I think if, if we say uh, the analogy of parenting, parenting is a 24-7 type enterprise. If, if you do it well, and especially at certain zones of, of children's lives, somebody has to be working. And it lasts they, 20 years, more It goes or less. on and on and on. Right. And uh, it's the same way in ministry. And a lot of, a lot of ministers, I think, uh, succumb to indolence. They, uh, th they think that, you know, uh, this is kind of an easy job and, and they treat it that way. And, and little by little, it, it becomes much easier than it should be. Um, right. Whereas there, there are a lot of ways that we can be uh, physically involved in our work. Uh, we can be... Um, Busy without becoming workaholics or, or, or just uh, uh, sort of obsessed with staying busy. Yeah. But, but being engaged is, is hard work at, at all levels. And uh, 
You certainly see that in Paul. So just for the <clears throat> for those who would like an analogy, 15,000 miles walked is like walking essentially from New York to San Diego and then back and then to San Diego again and then back again and then back to San Diego again and then walking somewhat past L.A. and, you know, part of the way up the coast toward Hawaii, toward, well, I was going to say toward San Francisco or San Jose. So it's, it's a lot of walking that he did. Now, half of that was walking, half was boat. Yeah, but the boats weren't easy. No, I they mean, weren't. we would not, that, <laughs> they were small, miserable, et cetera. And that, that doesn't necessarily count walking around town, as I recall that. Right. Yeah. These so, are trips from yeah, he would have walked one a, mission station to right, another. He would have walked a mile here, five miles there, over and over. Uh, you and I both know pastors who do give up, and unfortunately, we know pastors who preparing a sermon's hard, and they kind of stop. They plagiarize or they get a sermon service. Um, I had a pastor once who would, every six weeks, um, stand up and say, I'm sorry, but I didn't have time to prepare my sermon properly this week. And then he would demonstrate that he had spoken the truth when he made that announcement. And it tore his church apart eventually because he was a really good man. He was a kind man and had many virtues, but he wasn't able to discipline himself, at least in, in that regard. So uh, let me just, we'll maybe wrap up this section with a question. So what would you say is the connection between being a, a um, tree man and a scholar? And by the way, you also edit a journal. That, that's work as well. What's the connection? Do you see, I'm proposing there's one. Do you agree? What's the connection? Uh, well, one is having a sense of responsibility and doing the best you can to live up to what the responsibility is. Uh, all these things are service for other people, and, and you can do them for yourself. You know, you can do them as, as sort of a hireling mentality. Uh, what's the salary? What's the paycheck? You know, that's that's what I'm here to do. But um, if if you uh, are distinguished in your work, then you're going to be doing it for uh, bigger reasons than your paycheck. And uh, early on. I had a, a very domineering father, and, and I was conditioned to do things uh, for him, and they better be done well. Fairly uh, late in adolescence, uh, I got serious about serving God, faith in Jesus Christ, and uh, received a call to uh, devote my life to what I've ended up doing, which is studying Scripture and, and teaching Scripture. But, uh, you know, I was bivocational, and, and the same sorts of scruples that a Christian should have in serving the Lord, I realized, well, this, this is part of work, too. So uh, I need to be a, an honest workman. Most logging in, in the, that I did, it, it was all piecework. So by the log or by the board feet, and you scaled your own wood, and, and you counted your own stumps, and you counted your own logs. And especially on smaller jobs, they didn't have any way to check you. And uh, I knew bosses, they figured 33% stealing on the part of the guys who did what I did, which was, was cut the So word. they would cut, they would reduce their their reports or whatever by, to be realistic, they had to say, well, he well, said they he would did pay, 100. They would pay you a third less right. than what they should have been paying you. So on those jobs, I was, I was cut, I would always be honest in what I turned so in. So you were taking a 33% pay cut. For the sake of all the guys out there who were cheating. Yeah. On the other hand, when layoffs came, those were the people that went. And I right. found out within about two years, 
I did this for five years. At the end of two years, I, I realized that um, the, the people in that region who were honest were very, very few. And all the, all the, the, the logging contractors knew who the, the, the few honest ones were. So I was never out of work. Yeah. Uh, so we would say, you know, we always say that we say a couple things, uh, you know, when we work, we uh, we do it out of love for God and love for neighbor. And we also hope there's some joy in the labor. And uh, the way I say it in this podcast is we, we try to change our corner of the world. How would you describe <clears throat> your efforts to change your corner of the world through your work? Maybe uh, maybe right now. Obviously, there's a, there's a degree to which it's obvious logging, you know, you're making boards for furniture and houses and things and taking dangerous trees down. How, how do you change your corner of the world today as a professor? And you could say how you're changing, you could add how you're changing the world a little bit, your corner of the world as a logger. How do you change your corner of the world? And do you take pleasure in that? Well, I, I, I think, you know, these things start locally so certainly mm. you want to think about if, if you're married you want to think about your marriage and your relationship with your kids and uh, hopefully you're, you're a plus factor there mm. and if you're not a plus factor there whatever you are uh, beyond that I think Jesus called that hypocrisy so that's the first priority because sometimes you can you can cannibalize say your marriage or your family relations uh, to get professional gain Mm -hmm. And or you can look good in the eyes of people outside your home, but uh, people in your home curse your name. So uh, you don't want that to happen. I think what we see as, as seminary professors is, is we see people uh, often get get fired up about what what they're called to do. Uh, they get they get illumination on their path. Uh, Dan, you and I discussed close to 30 years ago, how a certain percentage of people that come to seminary, uh, which is supposed to be, you know, for professional equipping, they're just there to find themselves. <laughs> yes. Or they're, they're there for personal re remedial reasons as much as anything else. And it's amazing how many people find themselves getting reconstructed or, or put back together. And, and the relation to what we do directly may be tangential or oblique. Yes. <laughs> so it's not something we can take credit for. But we create a, a scenario where uh, people find God in new ways or they find resources to be the person that, that they want to be. But, you know, they have struggled largely unsuccessful to this point. And they're willing, in, the, in this case, going to seminary, they're willing to say, I'll, I'll spend a year studying theology to get to the bottom of what God wants of me, which may be, you know, to work in construction or, you know, be an editor of a newspaper, whatever the case may be, an engineer, just a better engineer. Yeah. So I, I would say that the main thing is uh, just seeing people encouraged um, in, in the subject matter uh, that, that we teach and uh, the direction that, that it takes them. And then... Um, you know, as I get older, I actually do reflect on these things sometimes. Uh, a lot of times, and this is truer as, as more and more of our students are, are younger. You know, 30 years ago, it was more people in their 30s. Or, there are a lot of people now in their 20s. And a lot of them came from more compromised family settings than used to be the case. Right. And uh, just generally, it seems people that are, that are shakier in, in a lot of ways. And just the, uh, the dignity of being taken seriously 
you know, paper, their paper marked carefully, being interacted with, being, being taken seriously as, uh, as a man or a woman who's, who's seeking God at a, uh, at a serious level. And you know this isn't this isn't uh, Sunday school. Uh, this isn't just pro forma professional training. There's there's something eternal at stake here, and you are significant in uh, what God is doing in the world. And uh, you know there's something that lifts us outside of ourselves, and we when we combine in the task of seeking and finding and serving and worshiping together. And that's probably the the, the best reason that God keeps me around for another you know, week, day, month, is, is that I'm part of, of communities where people really are, I think, uh, glorifying God, living better lives, and doing the will of God on earth. And, you know, you, Dan, you have these same opportunities. This week, I'm doing a podcast in England, and also uh, our friend Michael Van Andel in, in South Africa, he's scheming on some things that will be taking place in Johannesburg, but, but really around the world. There are a lot of ways that the Word of God is going forth, and those of us who teach it have a wonderful privilege of encouraging people in their walk of, of discipleship and service to Christ. Well, I'm going to pick up on two things you said and maybe uh, label them or restate them. The first is that you know these things occur in community and they're holistic. So you know you're teaching somebody, I don't know, Greek exegesis or maybe biblical ethics and uh, they want to meet with you, and they don't actually want to meet with you about Greek much, except maybe it, something that happened in Greek class. And they're reflecting on a broken relationship or maybe a marital challenge they have. And we enter into that. I mean, we, we change our corner of the world by simply being more than a professor and spending time with them on the life issue they're working on. So we agree on that. The other thing we agree on is that uh, people, you know, wring their hands and maybe even pull their hair about the decline of Christianity in, in Europe and North America. But as you and I both know, it's growing by enormous measures in South America and Africa and most of Asia, if not all of Asia. It's, it's just an amazing season. My I was reminded yesterday of, of the fact that an organization that we know about called Third Millennium, which we both helped out with a little bit, has uh, you know produced a variety of shows, including one on the life of Jesus and who he is. And you know they kind of dropped off a bunch of videos in, in Mandarin and English in Mongolia, where it became the number one TV show of the year a few years ago. Not the number one educational show, the number one show of the year. Now, Mongolia doesn't have a huge TV industry, so the competition's not as fierce, but it's fast. It's, and Mongolia's not a Christian country. I think we agree on that. So um, let me ask you a slightly different question. Maybe uh, it's up the same alley. Um, how do you pray for your work? What do you, what do you pray for? You know, um, there are, I guess, kind of two, two kinds of prayers. One are, are doxological. Right. So just worshipful prayers. Mm -hmm reflective prayers. Uh, beyond that, I would just say ad hoc. Okay. You know, what, what are the needs? Um, students know I have three by five cards that I take up on every student with some personal information. And in the course of the semester, I pray through those cards. And as the semester unfolds, I learn more about students. So often it's, it's the, what the students are up against that I'm praying for. Uh, there are institutional needs. Uh, there are world church needs. 
Uh, there are personal needs that you know my wife and I are, are facing various challenges. So uh, it's it's whatever is on the front burner, back burner, in the microwave, and in both ovens. Uh, there's never a shortage of things that um, aren't being prayed for enough, but that can be prayed for some. Yeah, I like that category categorization, uh, doxological and other, <laughs> which is not not a bad way to look at life. Uh, you know, it sometimes is a challenge to to heed the command to always be filled with thanks, to always to be prayerful always and thankful always. But it's a it's a beautiful part of God's instruction to us. We have fat, we have a, a rapid fire set of questions, but I want to ask you if you want to tell us anything else before we go to the rapid fire questions. Is there a, a word you want to say, a story you want to tell, anything you want to tell before we go to our rapid fire? late interview stage. Um, the other thing, the only other thing I guess I'll, I want to remind you of is uh, Paul, because we talked about him, he was a tradesman. Yes. And there's debate in the literature. Of course, in all scholarly literature on the Bible, there's debate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and everything that you think you know, somebody is denying it somewhere. But I'm going to say we can make a strong case that Paul was a skilled and competent leather maker or tent maker or something right. like that. And it's easy to forget and to trivialize the significance of Jesus not beginning his public ministry till he was 30 and Jesus being a tradesman. Right. And Jesus being from Galilee and Jesus being a man among men. And his parables are not the parables of an academic. They're not the parables of an intellectual. They're a parable of, of somebody who lived among common people and had great respect for how God changes the world through changing common people. And he did not, I mean, he fraternized with, with the Pharisees who would listen, you know, sort of the, the intellectual aristocracy, right. but he didn't cut them any slack. And he didn't vest his future in uh, the elite professional class. <laughs> and and yeah. I, I think this is very important for us to remember wherever we are uh, that, that, that Jesus and his disciples were, were common people, tradespeople, and um, we should be careful, especially in a society that's become more and more elitist and uh, that farms out more and more of certain kinds of work to other parts of the world. Or like in our own culture, we don't have the tradespeople, we don't have the trained manual labor people that we need. We're, we're not sending our kids to school, to, to trade schools. We're sending them to universities where they learn often not to be of, of much use for, for, for anything practical. Uh, there, there's something against the drift of what Jesus called us to if we're not careful. And we want to remember who it is that we serve in his earthly manifestation. Yeah. Uh, we could say Jesus didn't have footnotes. You know, he wasn't in the quoting the expert business. He quoted the Bible. He didn't quote, you know, the intelligentsia of his day, number one. Number two, you know, his parables are often about things like planting a field or bringing harvest from a tree, you know, very ordinary tasks. I've also thought many times about Jesus' hands and Paul's hands. I mean, if Paul worked with leather, uh, you know, he, he had to have strong, gnarly, kind of beat-up hands. And Jesus, I mean, I, I know you know this, you didn't say he's a carpenter, you said he was a tradesman, because, of course, the Greek is tectone, which can mean carpenter, but also it means somebody who works with materials. And he probably was skilled with could, stone. Could be, could be stonemason. And, and certainly also possibly metal, 
but we could say construction worker, manual labor, skilled labor, artisan, all those words work. But I, I have a feeling if you shook Jesus' hand, you would know you shook a hand. I mean, you don't, you don't work with wood and stone for 20, 20 plus years without getting ridiculously strong, calloused, rough, beat up hands. Okay, good. Uh, let's go to the, to the uh, rapid fire questions. And you know what these are. What do you do to play or relax? What do you do for fun? I do something different than what I was doing. Yeah. Um, I, I cut wood. Yes. At home, you know, I heat with wood, and that's yeah. that's recreational, a change of scene. Yep. And uh, my, wife, my wife and I like to go out to eat. Okay. That's fun. You also hike in the woods. You enjoy that, especially with your dog or dogs. That's a blast, and I do it uh, five times a day. Get the yeah. dogs out and see what, uh, what animal they're going to chase and uh, possibly kill next. Yeah. And that's, uh, that's when it's 95 degrees or 9 degrees. It doesn't matter how cold or hot. They're always happy to get outside and explore. And sometimes the adults are happy to also. Yes. Yes. <laughs> As I tell them, if you want to control, you have to patrol. <laughs> so one of them's a German Shepherd, so he's a great patrol dog. That's good. All right. Um, what book do you give or like to give the friends to read right now? You know, we're back to ad hoc. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't have a book book of the month. or. Uh, What's the last book you gave to a friend to read you can think of? Gave to a friend? Yeah. So you got to read this. It's so important to me. I'm going to just give it to you. Probably the last books I bought for people. You know, I mentioned Doxological Praying, and, yeah. and I buy the three volumes of The Divine Hours. Okay. Which are uh, a three-time-a-day devotional guide. Right. A summer uh fall winter and spring and i've given them to a number of people that i've that i've done the, the weddings for okay uh to, to encourage them in their wedding to have a, a time at least one of the three times during the day take that time and make sure you open your hearts up to god that's great the other the other book i recommend again and again to students is the chosen yes by kaim potek it's just such a great book about another religious tradition and has so much to say about uh about human meaning and human relations and erudition and learning. And baseball. Baseball's got a, a wonderful little cameo in there. Right. So it's just a, a very renewing and nurturing book if you are involved in theological study. Yeah, absolutely. It's also a book about family, deeply a book about family. And also, how do you honor tradition when at the same time uh, you have to break with the tradition? Right. That those tensions that are there. There are some unbelievable scenes in that book that if, if you've ever learned, tried to learn Hebrew or Greek, beat your, your head against, you know, the wall of, of these bodies of knowledge and you read that book, you, you just really feel like I've been there and this is, uh, this is manna for my soul. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Putting practical considerations aside, what would you do? What job would you take for a year? Uh, my, my wife would laugh at this, but she knows it's true. I'd, I'd drive truck for a year. Oh, yeah. Uh, I'd go back, I'd go back uh, tree trimming for a year. Yeah. Uh, I'd, I wouldn't mind being a farmer. Yeah. You know, uh, mow hay in the summer and do whatever they do in the fall with equipment and uh, spring planting. And uh, so, you know, I'm pretty open to any uh, challenging outdoor work right. or work with machinery. Yeah. I like to operate machinery. <laughs> um, if you were to exhort, train, teach, mentor a talented newcomer, 
And I'll let you go either way, but not both. Uh, you know, tree work or academic work, what would you say to that person? Kind of goes back to your negative example of the pastor who wasn't prepared. I would say uh, be prepared when you show up for work. Yeah, show up prepared. That's uh, because uh, even when I, when I was a student, th there were two kinds of professors. There were professors who really were ready for that hour, and then there were professors that I felt like were cheating me out of my tuition because it was just just a formality for them. You know, they had their notebook, they had what they were going to go through, and they hadn't given that time or that group of people any special thought. And, uh, it was the same lecture they'd given seven years ago. Yeah. Or maybe 20 years ago. Yeah, that always, I, I would occasionally, if, if I had a professor give a, what I consider a lifeless lecture, I would occasionally try to stroll up and ask them a question and look at the pages and see if they were yellowing. And, yeah. and I would also sometimes ask, what, what's the most recent book they cited? And if the most recent citation was from 20 years earlier, I thought, okay, now I understand why this lecture is lifeless. Right. Yeah. Um, what do people get wrong about your work? What would they be surprised to learn? You know, it depends on, on the people. I think people think uh, teaching is easy, but anybody who does teaching and aspires to do it well knows that, that it's not easy. You know, we, we happen to be uh, Christians, and uh, broadly speaking, we might well be called evangelicals. And uh, I'm perceiving a, a more and more pitched antagonism against evangelicals because it's so pointless and it's really, it's just hating. That's what it is. There's a recent article in People magazine about a well-known evangelical national leader who's now a woman, and he's pastoring as a woman. And that's his whole theme is the hatefulness of evangelicalism. And basically people are just doing it, it you know, for money and they're deluded. And uh, so kind of the wickedness of it, but that's not really, it's not really what we're doing. Uh, we're mediating God's grace and seeing lives changed. Mm -hmm. So there's, a, there's a, a much more beneficial purpose. And then we could get into, you know, History of Christianity and hospitals and caring yeah, for people and uh, universities and the, the the benefits of Christianity to the larger world, um, but 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 that aside, I, I think that the, the basic misunderstandings are that that it's easy or or that it's either pointless or or even detrimental to people what you do. Yeah, that that's become a theme lately. Uh, last question: Who should I interview next, in your opinion? And if I don't know him or her, would you connect us? Well, uh, I'd love to see you uh, interview Neil Henry in Cape Town, okay. South Africa, or uh, either Dana Harris at Trinity or Sydney Park at Beeson. You know, two women who teach in the New Testament, who, who've gone through a lot to be where they are. Uh, Neil Henry is uh, uh, a Christian leader in Cape Town who ministers in uh, a very large ghetto there and, and grew up in that disadvantaged uh, demographic under apartheid mm -hmm. and uh, is a tremendously effective uh, leader there in, in what's called the Christian Leadership Program as well as a pastor. Yeah. So very colorful background and uh, very nice accent. And you can, uh, you can uh, interview him in English or Afrikaans and, and maybe another language or two as well. And uh, he'll have a lot to say on, on uh, a lot of different things. Yeah. Theoretically, I could interview in Afrikaans. I would, I would have to learn Afrikaans first. Well, that's up to you. <laughs>
Bob, uh, it's a pleasure to have you and hear your views and have your contribution to this little hour, but also really to the wider world. And I'm deeply appreciative for your work and your insights. Thanks for coming today. Thank you for inviting me. Working with Dan Doriani is a production of the Center for Faith and Work St. Louis. We seek to promote faithfulness in the workplace, in education, in discipleship, and in the stories of believers who've applied their faith at work. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and rate us on your preferred podcast platform. You can visit our website at faithandworkstl.org. There you can subscribe to our podcast, sign up for our newsletter, learn more about faith and work cohorts, leave us a message, and more. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Faith and Work STL and find the video version of the show on our YouTube channel. All these links are available in the podcast show notes and on our website. Thanks for listening.